Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The Leviathan Chronicles. An audio adventure. The story thus far. The connection between Leviathan and Mount Shenglong has been made. Wit Roberts of the Black Door Group, along with Miley and Oberlin St. Clair, have made the long and dangerous trek through the Tibetan mountains to enter the cave where the Chinese first found a functioning starstone over a decade ago. Mount Shenglong is revealed to be a giant communications facility for Leviathan to contact the planet Sorax. Assisted by four monstrous enforcers, the three of them penetrate deep within the bowels of the mountain to access a hidden chamber containing an enormous keyhole. Whit Roberts uses his briefcase, now recovered from Oberlin and Mai Li, to activate the keyhole, which opens a portal directly to Leviathan City. On the other side of the portal stands Bennu, Dr. Tang Sui, and the two Saraxian aliens who beg to be rescued. But deeper in Leviathan, McAllen and Tully find themselves adjusting to life among the immortal population deep under the ocean. Tully has managed to find a ramshackle dive bar known as the Salty Squid, and McAllen continues to trail Evangeline, learning more about governance within the immortal city and the heavy burden Evangeline carries with her. But not everyone has enjoyed the pleasures of Leviathan equally. Harlequin has been brutally tortured by Bennu, but has made a daring escape and is currently a fugitive at large within Leviathan City. But back in Tibet, Senshin and Nathaniel Pratt have survived an assassination attempt and are on the run. While in Lhasa, the capital of Tibet, they discover a knapsack left behind by Mai Li. Within it, they find a mysterious map leading to Mount Shenglung. And now the season finale, chapter 25, The Showdown at Mount Shenglung, part two. We're running out of time, Senshin. The plane will be here. It will be getting cold soon. I know. Nathaniel Pratt shivered as he looked upwards to watch the fading sun descend behind the icy grey mountains of the Tibetan highlands. He and Senshun stood in a large desolate field with little protection from the bitter alpine winds that penetrated the valley from the north. High above them, surrounding the field, were peaks reaching over 25,000 feet that now cast long shadows over the frozen ground where the men stood. The only vegetation in the field was a large expanse of lichen that carpeted most of the ground not covered in a thin layer of snow. The field was devoid of any trees or large rocks, and given the events of the past few days, now left Nathaniel feeling distinctly exposed. I don't understand. Why didn't we arrange for transport all the way to Tingri? The detour we took cost us several hours and has actually taken us further away from Mount Shenglong. I don't understand. What does this plane have that we need so badly? Protection and access. I still don't understand. 
<laughs> you soon will. But Sension, how will Black Door- There! From the distance, a black Gulfstream 650 emerged from between two distant peaks and made a bees line for Sension and Nathaniel's location. It was hard to see the black speck against the fading light of dusk, but Nathaniel was sure it was the same plane that had brought him to New York from Amsterdam. As it got closer, the plane tilted its wings to the side to get through the narrow ravine that led into the valley that held the frozen field. It pulled a tight loop a few hundred feet above the two men before sharply dropping its altitude to come in for a landing in the large clearing. Once it touched down, the jet taxied to within a few feet of the men, and Nathaniel could see that it was a different pilot than the man that had flown him to upstate New York a week ago. This time, a woman, dressed in an elegant sari, with an earpiece and aviator sunglasses, was piloting the plane. Come on. Sension and Nathaniel quickly boarded the plane as it came to a stop before them. As they boarded, Sension walked Nathaniel back through the plush cabin, adorned with Connolly leather and burl walnut trim. The female pilot was standing in the aft, ready to greet them. Hello, Sension. Hello, Anjali. Who is the boy? His name is Nathaniel, and he's one of us. Anjali stared at Nathaniel warily, and then turned her attention back to Sension. This mission is dangerous, Sension. You should have far more backup than just this boy. We could have six specialists from Dhrabi here on the ground in less than four hours. A team of just two men won't be enough to can't have a larger force, Anjali. Can't or won't. What exactly are you asking? You're not responsible for everyone, Senshin. Soldiers are trained to fight. They are also trained to die. Anjali, I've made my decision. I want wheels up in two minutes. Blackdoor knows we're in Tibet. I can't lead a larger force in. Not when we have no idea what we're facing. All the more reason to bring a larger team that would have a wider skill set. I want them dead! This is our one chance, Anjali, to cut the head off the snake! Blackdoor is getting closer to us. They know something. They got to Okoro. They knew we were in Laza, and they may have gotten to McAllen Orsal. We are running out of places to hide Anjali. You're still putting yourself in unnecessary risk. The local authorities in Mumbai are asking too many questions about our base operations. There are too many witnesses that saw those two monsters tear apart half of Tarabi. We can't relocate the base in Mumbai until we get the local authorities to stop breathing down our necks. These times are desperate, Ascension. We need our leader. I'm right here, Anjali. We'll see for how long. The cargo has been loaded, as per your instructions. But this, this is irrelevant. The suits haven't even been fully tested. Anjali? Yes, Sanchin. How are your two boys? They are leaving in a week to begin university in America, thanks to you. They'll be attending Dartmouth and Colgate. It gets very cold at Colgate. It's very cold where you're going. Maybe you both should stay here. <sighs> When you go back to Mumbai, tell your sons that they are lucky to have a mother as brave as you. Live long enough and tell them yourself. Anjali turned her back to Sension and headed back to the cockpit to prepare for takeoff. The rum is in the gold cabinet beside the seats. <laughs> the rum. Sension looked over to the side of the cabin to see an intricate gold inlay cabinet with ruby-encrusted handles beside one of the spacious cabin seats. He opened the cabinet door to reveal a bottle of Ron Zacapa Centenario 23-year-old rum resting in a chilled bucket of ice. <laughs> Jolly is not pleased with the design of this mission. Whatever gave you that idea? Because she brought the 23-year and not the XO. Here, hold this. Sension handed the cold bottle of rum to Nathaniel and thrust his hand deep inside the frigid bucket of ice. At the bottom of the bucket, Sension's hand met with a small rubber switch that he flipped to the right. The rear of the sumptuous cabin was covered with a single slab of polished walnut paneling. A split second later, the panel slid back to reveal a thick titanium door with a scratched and dated looking keypad on the side. 
A bit utilitarian for an executive jet. We've made a few modifications for our needs in the Rebellion. We make every effort to seem as conventional as possible in case we're ever seen or boarded. In order to do that, we have to use some very unconventional technology. Follow me. The two men walked through the titanium doorway and found themselves in a small, tight elevator. At the same time, the G650 began its takeoff and in moments was well on its way to a cruising altitude of 55,000 feet. The elevator dropped down a level to open into a small cargo hold in the belly of the jet. Towards the rear of the hold stood two gleaming silver crates that were over 10 feet high. The surface of the crates was so lustrous that Nathaniel could actually see himself in its reflection. What are in those silver crates? Is it the access or the protection? Protection. What kind of protection? Assault armor. It's time to get ready for war. Assault armor? What the hell? Nathaniel, listen to me. Wherever we're going, it's someplace Black Door has been trying very hard to get to. We're not going to be able to just slap on some backpacks and go hiking up a well-marked trail to Mount Shenglong. Black Door will have this region wired. We'll know of our presence as soon as we get within a day's journey of the mountain. That's why we need another way in. A quieter way. This jet will help us with that. The excess. Exactly. The black coating on the outside isn't a mere fashion statement. It's actually a radar-absorbent polymer coating. Those jet turbines on the wings? They're fake. For show. The real exhaust is actually generated from tiny vent ports all along the edge of the wing using a magnesium-based fuel that reduces our heat signature. And don't even get me started on the weaponry. This plane is going to get us to Mount Shenglong. Quietly. How? This plane needs a runway. There is no way it can land on the summit of Mount Shenglong. The map we found specified that Black Door's destination was at an altitude of over 23,000 feet. How would The plane isn't going to be landing, Nathaniel. Nathaniel now stood silent. Come. Ascension approached the glimmering silver crate and placed the palm of his hand on top of the colored touchscreen embedded in the front of the crate. After recognizing Sension's identity, the front face of the crate pushed forward and rose upwards hydraulically, sliding back into the top of itself. Inside, tiny halogen lights brightly illuminated a menacing-looking dark blue metallic suit that stood over seven feet tall. The body of the suit was covered in tiny interlaced links that resembled scales on a fish, giving the impression of both strength and flexibility. The helmet of the suit seemed to be oversized compared with the rest of the suit. Its giant tinted visor looked strangely aerodynamic and extended from the forehead down far enough to touch the top of the center chest plate. Behind the helmet rose a small hump that came up to mid-neck, but the most striking feature was the aggressive armament. Rising from each shoulder pad was a high-speed 20mm carbine assault rifle perched on top of an articulating pivot stand. Each mini-cannon extended almost two feet diagonally from each shoulder, making the otherwise anthropomorphic shape seem vaguely insectoid. Oh Behold the wonder of Project Vigil Assault Armor. Why is it called Vigil? I really couldn't say. I don't understand. You built it, didn't you? I assembled it, but I didn't design it. Well, who did? Evangeline. What? When I led the rebellion out of Leviathan, we grabbed several core memory files from the city's AI central server. Whatever we could grab. And it ended up taking us decades to unlock the files and bypass the security codes. But ultimately we did. The designs of the Vigil Assault Suit were one of the recovered files. Astounding! No, no, you're actually wrong. The really astounding part was the assembly plan. The what? Also contained within the core memory files were schematics to build an entire assembly plan within Leviathan to manufacture thousands Thousands of these suits. Enough for an army. Why would Evangeline want an army? Sension stared at Nathaniel. Oh no. 
Project Taeon. Something very deadly is happening deep under the ocean, and we may be the only ones that can stop it. But first, we have to deal with Black Door. So, let's get you familiarized with the assault suits. Well, what do they do? The bottom line is that they protect you. The small hump you see rising over the rear neckline is the integrated deployment pack containing a stealth glider. Essentially, it's a very large paraglider constructed from a radar-absorbent fabric, similar to what's on the outside of this plane. We'll be deploying it over 70,000 feet. The suits will supply us with oxygen and maintain our body temperature. Air is almost non-existent at this altitude, and the negative pressure would literally boil your blood, so we'll be descending very quickly. Your battle armor contains a thick layer of compression fluid that's designed to absorb a heavy impact, like from landing. In our case, landing will probably mean initiating a manual disconnect from your chute using this button on your chest plate here when you get within 50 feet of the ground. The Himalayan winds at Chenglong will most likely be very strong and variable, so do not attempt to land your glider. Spot your landing, fly over it, and disconnect. Just keep it simple. What if we miss, Senshin? Then the drop will be greater than 50 feet. No, Senshin, no! This this is getting crazy. I can't... I mean, I'm not even trained. Nathaniel. No. Nathaniel, stop. I need you. I need you with me on this mission. I swear I won't let anything happen to you, but right now you just need to focus and listen to the things I'm telling you. I know you can do this. In fact, you're capable of so much more than you ever thought. I'm looking at a man who escaped from Leviathan City, who leapt through a keyhole with no idea where it would take him. God knows I've made some mistakes over the past few centuries, but there's one thing I'm not mistaken about, and that's your courage. We are going to do this, Nathaniel. We are going to complete this mission, and we are going to win. We will, Nathaniel. Do you trust me? Yes. Yes, I trust you, Senshin. <sighs> Good. Good. I promise the suits are easy to control. The central control module on your wrist and chest plate operate the interface with your suit's computer. I've already shown you the button for the manual disconnect with your glider, but I want to show you the navigation features. I have the coordinates of Mount Chenglong programmed into both of our nav computers, so our suits will literally steer our paragliders to the target. In the event that your glider malfunctions in the air, the computer will automatically detect an increase in your vertical speed and deploy your reserve chute contained in your chest plate. You mean if this chute doesn't open? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what I mean. Nathaniel, I promise you, you have nothing to worry about. Your helmet is equipped with night vision and infrared systems. It's also integrated with the carbine cannons mounted on your shoulder pads that aim automatically and fire at your command. All you need to do is look at the target and the computer will follow your retinal movement to lock on. We have no idea what we could be facing when we get to Chenglong. Could be a small black ops force, could be... could be anything. Point is, we're just gonna have to call an audible as we get closer to the target. Let's stay sharp, listen to my commands, and everything is gonna be fine. Do you understand? I understand, Senshin, but I have one question. What's that? What in heaven's name is an audible? In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.
are approaching the drop zone, Sanchin. Understood. We're secure in cargo. Please open the hatch, Jolly. The belly of the G650 shuddered, and then lowered its loading ramp, exposing the cargo bay to the jet stream that howled at 70,000 feet. Ferocious winds invaded the cabin, instantly evacuating everything that wasn't tied down. A thick steel railing extended downwards, and Sension and Nathaniel used it to steady themselves as they slowly walked down to the edge of the ramp, clad in the vigil assault suits. The ground below rose as high as 25,000 feet above sea level, but the distance from ground to plane still seemed impossibly high. Far from being cumbersome, Nathaniel was amazed at how light the armor felt, despite its hulking size. Nathaniel, bring your suits interface system online. Nathaniel touched his metal-clad hand to a small touch screen on his left forearm. The screen was coded to only accept instructions from the unique electrostatic charge generated by his own gauntlets. In seconds, the inside of his helmet visor flashed brightly and then began to display diagnostic information on both his and Sension's suits. An LED readout appeared that showed that the temperature within the cargo bay had now plunged to negative 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Got it. All systems are nominative. We have arrived at the drop zone. The window is open. Be careful, Sension. I will. Thank you, Anjali. Thank you for everything. I'll see you back in Mumbai. All right, Nathaniel, are you ready? I am, but I'm scared, Sension. I'm scared too, friend. But Black Door is somewhere down there, hidden in the mountains. And as long as we're both immortal, they'll try to destroy us. And if they're close to apprehending McCown or Orsel, then we have little time left. I understand. All right, then. Here we go, Nathaniel. Ready? Show. The two of them leapt forward into the frigid Himalayan night, tumbling into the darkness. The pair shot downwards at over 250 miles per hour. Tiny wisps of cloud streaked past them, making the distant mountains beneath them disappear then reappear again. Nathaniel could hear the wind screaming past his helmet, but he could feel none of the cold. Powerful gusts rocked his body back and forth, and the Himalayan mountain range that had seemed so small and compact from 70,000 feet was now rapidly becoming enormous, threatening to swallow him whole. He looked up to see the G650 jet now become little more than a distant speck of shadow far above him. Activate gliders, now. Well done. Press the green button on your control module. It'll activate our target waypoint in the nav computer in your visor. The autopilot will engage automatically and guide us towards Mount Shenglong. Got it. Distance to target, 11,000 meters. The interior of Nathaniel Pratt's visor was illuminated in eerie green light. He looked to his left and could see tiny servos pulling and extending the risers of his paraglider, thus maneuvering and steering his chute through three-dimensional guide markers displayed in his visor. The heads-up display listed Nathaniel's heading, altitude, ground speed and airspeed, rate of descent and outside temperature. But none of these technological feats could compare with what Nathaniel could see before him. Sparking in the crystal green light of his visor's night vision, Nathaniel could see the entire spine of the Himalayas laid out before before him, bathing in the full moonlight. The night, while frigid and deadly, was now displaying a majesty unlike any Nathaniel had ever seen. Everything was silent, save for a small trace of the jet stream winds blowing past Nathaniel's helmet. The mountains looked soft and benevolent, coated in shimmering white snow, punctuated by a sharp outcropping of dark rock. Not a soul or trace of civilization marred the pristine beauty laid out before them.
This is truly where the gods must reside. Senshin's glider flew 300 feet ahead of him, and Nathaniel watched his left wingtip dip low, and then veer lazily to the left. We're getting some crosswind from the north. Give the glider some right break to compensate. Roger. The two of them flew in silence for the next hour, gliding between the peaks of the towering mountains and over the deep crevices of the Himalayan ice fields. The gliders above them felt remarkably stable, yet only a little body lean from Nathaniel would cause his chute to drift left or right. After doing so, the nav computer would quickly correct by automatically tightening one of the steering lines to bring Nathaniel back on course with Mount Shenglong. It was amazing to be this high and have nothing, no plane, no cavern, nothing tying him down. Nathaniel felt at one with the night sky, and the gentle swaying of his glider reminded him of rolling over gentle waves on the sea. The earth looked so peaceful from this high up, and for an instant, Nathaniel forgot how there could be any conflict, any war or bloodshed between people when the world around them offered such generous bounty. But his thoughts were quickly dismissed by a blinking red arrow that appeared on Nathaniel's visor, pointing downwards. Approaching target. Ascension, what is this? We're here. We've reached the target zone. Let's mount Shenlong ahead of us. It's enormous. I, I don't see any place for us to put down except for a, a tiny rock ledge below the peak. Yeah, I'm getting that. Activate your zoom. Do you see what I'm seeing? It looks like the entrance to some sort of cave. There's not much of a path leading up to it, though. Are we really going to land directly on that outcropping? We have to try. Not much of a landing zone anywhere else. The only way to nail that landing is to come in fast and hard. The assault armor we're wearing should absorb most of the- Ascension! I'm getting elevated radiation readings. There, by the cave. Yeah, I- Nathaniel, switch to thermal imaging. What the- Out of the cave emerged two gargantuan figures that lit up the team's thermal imaging. Each figure was over ten feet high and almost as wide as they were tall. Their silhouette was roughly human in shape, but unnervingly wrong in proportion. What the hell are those? Those are the Enforcers. Abominations. Utter fucking abominations that killed Othello back in Mumbai. Shit. You need to listen to me quickly, Nathaniel. These things, these monsters, are dangerous. They'll kill us if we get too close. I don't want you to land anywhere near them, do you understand? You need to veer off in order Ascension, to- I won't. We have Nathaniel, to- Nathaniel, do not engage the enforcers. I shouldn't have brought you but on- But you did! You did bring me, and I'm here now. So let's talk about how exactly we're going to kill these damned things together. You don't understand. I understand that Black Door must be after something incredibly valuable to have creatures that scare even you guarding the entrance to that cave. We didn't come this far to turn away, Senshin. So I'll ask again, how do we kill an enforcer? Firepower. A massive amount of firepower. More than I suspect we have. What about the cannons on our assault armor? What if we concentrate our firepower together? It's certainly worth a try, right? You're right. Of course, you're right. But we're still 6,000 feet above the target. We can't engage them at this distance. We need to get in closer on final approach before we open fire. Agreed. The two sleek paragliders turned in unison, dipping their left wingtips downward, causing the gliders to initiate several slow 360s. As Senshin and Nathaniel bled off their altitude, their nav computers began to line up their final approach pattern towards Mount Shenlong. Okay, Nathaniel. Ready? Ready. Activate threat mode. On it. I've got weapons locked. Need to use our element of surprise. There, on the left side of the entrance. That's the enforcer will head first. Ready? Engage target, now! 
The two enforcers that stood sentry outside the entrance to the cave were caught completely unaware. High-powered bullets rained down on them, blowing chunks of flesh off their shoulders and chests. The two enforcers turned simultaneously and screamed in fury at their assailants, but struggled to locate where exactly the shots originated. The impact of the bullets forced each enforcer back at least two steps, pinning them against the mountain. And yet, no pain seemed to register on either face of the two beasts. Reload! Fire again! But as their gliders drifted closer to the mountain, the air became far more turbulent. Sentient's paraglider pitched forwards and backwards violently as the Venturi effect suddenly accelerated the winds between the narrow gaps in the mountain. He struggled to maintain altitude as he realized he could no longer control the stability of his glider. He quickly looked over his shoulder and could see Nathaniel's glider careening to the side of Mount Shenlong, causing him to rapidly lose altitude. Nathaniel, I can't control the glider, Sension. I'm, I'm falling. Quickly, go your speed bar. That'll stabilize the wings. The first enforcer exploded out of the ground, leaping 40 feet in the air to grab Senshin's legs. The enormous weight of the monster brought Senshin and the enforcer crashing down on the narrow lip of the high ledge. The second enforcer raced over and with one swing of his fist threw Senshin against the mountain hard, sending electricity surging through his body armor to compensate for the impact. The first enforcer was on his feet again and launched his fist into Sension's face. But Sension saw the blow coming and was able to strafe a left, allowing the punch to smash into the side of the mountain. Get out of here, Nathaniel. Senshin rolled left and sprang to his feet, coming dangerously close to the lip of the ledge. Out of the corner of his eye, he could see over the precipice and down the sheer face of Mount Shenglong. The ground was so far below that it was obscured in the thick cloud cover below them. Weapons, weapons, computer, give me weapon systems. From his visor monitor embedded within his helmet, Senshin could now see cracks across his screen. Red symbols covered the right side of his monitor, highlighting the multiple areas of damage in his assault arm. The retina activated mouse was frozen in place, and Sension could find no way to access the interface to the weapon systems. Fuck it. Sension unholstered his Walter PPK that was strapped to the thigh of his battle armor. Sension unloaded five shots at the closest enforcer, disintegrating most of the monster's cheek. But again, the shots had little effect in stopping the monster. In one leap. Grabbed Senshin's arm and threw him 20 feet in the air. He slammed down on the cold ground just outside the cave entrance. He tried to quickly get back on his feet, but he rose much slower as the power was almost completely drained in his suit. Senshin sprinted for the safety of the cave, but the second enforcer was too fast. It overtook him in seconds, grabbing him by the throat and pinning him against the mountain wall. The enforcer tightened his grip around Senshin's neck and strained to close his hand, crushing Senshin's windpipe. System with Senshin pinned against the wall, his paraglider luffed aimlessly beside him. It twisted on the snow-covered ground and tangled up in itself. Suddenly, a strong gust from the west surged down the face of the mountain. The paraglider, still connected to the back of Senshin's body armor, caught the wind and raced across the ground, flying off the ledge. The thin Kevlar lines of the glider rapidly grew taut and ripped Senshin's body out of the hands of the enforcer. 
but the tangled glider lines also got caught around the heavy feet of the enforcer as well. The two of them were now being pulled off the ledge by what was essentially a massive sail. The flailing enforcer ripped several of the lines, causing the glider to deform, but there was still enough momentum to pull the two of them over the edge. The second enforcer saw the first getting pulled over the edge and leapt to save him, but he underestimated the force of the wind and found himself getting pulled over the side as well. The three of them now tumbled over the side of Mount Shenglong, tangled, caught in a thick mess of Kevlar lines. The long fall began slowly and started to accelerate as gravity took hold and Senshin found himself hoping his suit would fall, making his death as quick and painless as possible, when suddenly... The glider lines just a few feet above Senshin's armor were caught on one of the large boulders that the enforcers had failed to throw over the side. Senshin now hung a few feet below the ledge, while the enforcers both hung about 40 feet below the ledge. They were each hanging by the same mess of thin Kevlar lines that, while unbelievably strong given their narrow diameter, were showing signs of failure. Oh my god, I gotta get back on the ledge. It's just, just beyond reach. Fuck! Come on, Senshin. Fucking reach. Oh, these lines won't last another 10 seconds. The first enforcer pulled violently on the riser line, propelling himself upwards. It reached for Senshin's legs, but its fingertips just grazed Senshin's boots. As the enforcer fell back downwards, it grabbed the paraglider lines next to it, thus stressing the failing lines further. No, no! And then for a moment, both enforcers stood totally still. There was no more thrashing or pulling, no movement at all. They just hung lifeless in the tangled lines of Senshin's paraglider. What the fuck? Why are they... The enforcers suddenly exploded in fury. They began pulling and thrashing at the lines. Are they fucking crazy? We're gonna snap the lines. We're gonna kill all of us. And then it struck him. My God, these enforcers—they're—they're expendable. Who's ever controlling them doesn't care if they live or die. Just make another batch of them. Disposable soldiers. They'll sacrifice a few pawns to get me the king. I see it now. Fuck. Gotta move. I've got to... But it was too late. There were only a few Kevlar lines left. Senshin desperately tried pulling himself up by the riser lines, but it was clear he had waited too long. Only a few feet more, and he would have made it. But now, there was only one line left. One little thread to keep him alive, so that... Senshin! Nathaniel. Nathaniel had seen Senshin battling with the enforcers and activated the manual disconnect from his paraglider. He fell over 30 feet down, but managed to land on his feet, allowing his vigil assault armor to absorb the hard landing. As Senshin's last riser line snapped, Nathaniel leapt for the edge of the cliff and grabbed Senshin's wrist as he started to fall. The two enforcers were still tangled in the lines as they fell, but the velocity of their freefall partially inflated the paraglider again. It was lopsided and flew erratically, but Senshin could see the glider twisting in the wind, heading south, carrying the two enforcers, tangled and dangling far away from Mount Shenglong. Nathaniel. Oh my god, Nathaniel. I've got you, Senshin. It's okay. I'm gonna pull you up. Grab the ledge as soon as you can. Normally, Nathaniel could never have supported the weight of Senshin, let alone the hundreds of pounds that the assault armor weighed. But his own suit of armor gave Nathaniel greatly enhanced strength and a vice-like grip on Senshin's wrist. Ah. <clears throat> Thank you, Nathaniel. Thank you. I really thought that... that I was going to... No longer be immortal. I guess it was a good thing that you brought me along, Senshin. Yes, I can clearly say that was one of my better decisions. <laughs> Your decision? <laughs> yeah, well, you saved me, Nathaniel. You saved my life. I seem to recall a certain trip to New York where you saved my own immortal ass not once but twice. I'm quite happy to call it even. Thank you, Nathaniel. You're welcome, Senshin. Are you sure you're alright? Yes. Yes, I'm fine. It's just that... I don't know. 
I don't think I've ever been that close to, to the end. I really thought that was it, Nathaniel. Going over that ledge, it all went so wrong so quickly. The odd part is I just realized I haven't even considered my own demise in centuries. I just assumed I would somehow live forever. Amazing how quick one can get used to the concept. I guess it's also amazing how deluded you can make yourself. Like I said earlier, we're a team now. And as long as I'm here, I promise to make sure that you maintain your immortality for as long as you can... Exploding out of the cave was a third Enforcer. The Enforcer paid no mind to Sension, wanting instead to finish the slaughter he started. Nathaniel's body lay in a heap outside the entrance of the cave. Sension struggled to get to his feet, but the Enforcer was already on top of Nathaniel. Blow after blow landed on Nathaniel's body, and Sension could hear the sound of metal being destroyed. Sension sprinted as fast as he could to rescue Nathaniel, but it was too late. As he ran over, he saw the Enforcer holding Nathaniel against the wall and gripping the boy's forearms. With one swift tug, he tore Nathaniel's arm off his body like it was ripping off a band-aid. No. No! Nathaniel's body went slack in the mammoth hands of the Enforcer, who then turned to casually toss the young boy's body over the side of the sheer cliff. Sension watched his body sail over the lip of the precipice like a flaccid rag doll and then disappear into the mist thousands of feet below. No, no, he was just a boy. He... Sension felt like his stomach had been suddenly ripped from his body and the icy Himalayan winds could blow right through him. Another death, he thought. Another death, another victim, another fucking sacrifice. But his sorrow was short-lived. The murderous enforcer stood up and slowly turned to stare directly at Sension. Fuck, I can't access the cannon. I've got no offensive capabilities. Think smart, Sension. You can't win this fight, so if I want to live, I have to run. With the enforcer blocking the only path off the high cliff, Sension raced into the cave to stay ahead of the enforcer. The monster gave immediate chase as soon as it saw him making a run for it. A normal human being would never have lasted long in a foot race with an enforcer, but his vigil assault armor kept Sension just a few crucial steps in front of his pursuer. Sension blazed as fast as he could down the center chamber, feeling the enforcer's blows missing him by inches as he was showered in rock and bits from the ceiling that collapsed around him. The the cave ceiling was lined with metal beams and traces of rail tracks along its dusty floor. Looks like someone has been in this cave before. A long time ago from the looks of it. Who was it? His legs pumped like engine pistons, assisted by both the armor and his own immortal physiology. But Sension could see that his time was running out. One of the few displays that still operated on his helmet's computer visor was the suit's battery level. Last bar of power was now blinking in red. Damn it. Getting harder to run. Suit's taking too much damage. Fuck. I need an escape. Come on. On. Ah, where the hell is Black Door hiding? Sension kept sprinting down the corridor, but as his suit got heavier, he could feel the Enforcer closing in on him. Just then, Sension spied a high landing at the far end of the corridor. It was a ledge above a circular room recessed deep in the mountain. There. The ledge was high, and Sension couldn't see what lay below him, but it didn't matter. The Enforcer was furious and only a few feet behind him. With one last burst of energy, Sension ran up the ledge and leapt with all his might. Whatever's down there has got to be better than what's chasing me. But as he soared through the air above the circular chamber, he instantly realized that he was wrong. Dead wrong. (sighs) 
Based on his limited experience, Senshin had only observed two facial expressions that the enforcers were capable of producing, either slack-jawed mindlessness or pure and fettered rage. So it came as an unwelcome surprise that as Senshin sailed through the air, he now witnessed a third expression upon the face of the fourth enforcer that stood in the middle of the circular room below him, holding three zip lines that led into a dark square hole in the floor of the room. Utter shock was the only expression that registered on the enforcer's face. It was still gripping the three zip lines, therefore it was unable to block Senshin's boot coming clean against his massive jaw. <coughs> the red behemoth moved little, putting Senshin off balance in the air and crashing into the floor of the circular temple. He had just enough time to look up and be utterly terrified by what he saw. Goddess. The enforcer that was chasing him above leapt off the high landing and was now soaring in the air above the circular temple, brandishing one of the thick ceiling beams from the cave. It held it high above his head like a warhammer and was about to obliterate Senshin. No, no, move! The beam missed Senshin by only a few feet, but some of the broken pieces of the girder smashed into his helmet, taking out the last of his visor's visibility. Shit. Senshin scrambled to his feet to watch the enforcer pick up the metal beam which had broken in half. He quickly scrambled to disconnect his now useless helmet and flung it at the closest enforcer, who used what remained of the metal beam to swat it away. Out of the corner of his eye, Senshin could see the other enforcer quickly tying off the ropes he had been clutching in order to join the fray. Fuck, my armor shot, no weapons. Damn it. One of these enforcers is deadly enough. They both join in. I'm fucking finished. Move quick, Senshin. The enforcer swung the beam fast at Senshin's head. He ducked, figuring the swing would leave the enforcer off balance. But it was set up for a kick that sent Senshin sprawling across the temple floor. Suddenly, everything in Senshin's world went dark. There was no air left in Senshin's lungs, and he knew several ribs were broken. His vision was blurred, but he could still make out the enforcers. Two giant red demons running towards him. The room was perfectly circular, and each enforcer was approaching from an opposite direction. They're closing in on me. Nowhere to run. This is it. Rebellion is here. Damn you, Black Dwarf. Senshin knew the enforcers would be expecting him to leap high, so instead, Senshin sprinted for ten steps and then dropped to the ground, sliding on the rough floor of the temple. The enforcers weren't expecting this, so Senshin was able to slide under their clutches and make it past the first one moving clockwise. He sprang back to his feet and with his last bit of strength, ran toward the dark hole in the center of the temple floor. And for the second time... <coughs> leapt into the darkness with no knowledge at all of what lied below. Frigid Lake Superior, a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. McAllen entered Leviathan Cathedral and headed towards the Emerald Courtyard in the far rear of the building. It was a beautiful day, but to McAllen, each of the last several days had been beautiful. The sky continued to blaze proudly above her, producing colors she never thought possible, and each meal she enjoyed seemed better than the last. Seafood she had never heard of was produced in copious amounts, and all of the evening meals were accompanied by a honeyed sparkling wine that carried heavy notes of cinnamon, nutmeg, and apricot. It was called Venotius, and was quite the staple at Leviathan meals. 
Instead of making her feel sleepy as wine or beer often did, McAllen felt distinctly flushed as well as giddy and susceptible to easy laughter. But most of all, it was the incredible company that she was privileged to keep that made each day so wondrous. McAllen had met over a hundred people in the last few days, including a French field nurse from World War I, a 14th century Greek cartographer who pontificated how to best map out the vastness of space three-dimensionally, and a female aviator wearing a weathered leather jacket that refused to tell McAllen her name, but did offer her a stick of beechnut gum. Evangeline had clearly collected the most interesting people she had met during her last thousand years of existence, and McAllen reveled in meeting each one of them. I guess if you live for a millennia, you get to meet some pretty cool folks. The only aspect of days past that did not seem beautiful to McAllen was the absence of one particular person's company. Evangeline's. Yes, she had invited McAllen to a dinner party at the house of a young Incan prince who decorated his dining room with exquisite gold figurines and maintained an unnervingly keen eye on McAllen. But she was disappointed at her seating assignment, which placed Evangeline at the head, leaving McAllen several seats away, sandwiched between one of Genghis Khan's political advisors and a woman who claimed to be one of the original American settlers on Roanoke Island. All of it left McAllen feeling somewhat neglected by someone who was supposed to be her twin sister of sorts. It made McAllen feel odd, like she was somehow keeping a secret from herself. All of this just made McAllen that much more grateful to receive an invitation to join Evangeline in one of the smaller courtyards of Leviathan Cathedral. After walking through several long corridors within the vast church that towered over the south end of the city, she pushed on a large wooden door that opened slowly to reveal a stunning moss garden inside the courtyard. Two flagpoles stood opposite each other, displaying the tricolor flag of Leviathan, depicting two sea dragons holding the crest of a star stone. The sky above seemed to pulse rhythmically, making McAllen imagine that Lorelei must have been listening to one of her post-punk albums from the 80s. The deep green moss completely carpeted every inch of the ground, including most of the heavy stone walls of the courtyard. A small gravel path lined with cherry blossoms led further into the interior of the courtyard, where McAllen could see a narrow winding brook that coalesced into a small reflecting pond. In the middle of the pond was an island with a white granite bench. Upon the bench sat Evangeline pensively staring at the small ripples in the clear water. Uh, I can see why you call it the Emerald Courtyard. <laughs> you could say that nomenclature has never been my strong suit. My god, it's it's so beautiful back here. This courtyard, it's totally hidden from Leviathan City. I wouldn't have even known this place existed from the outside. Yes, well, it's a welcome bit of privacy I afford myself. I enjoy coming here to be alone with my thoughts, listening to the delicate sound of running water. So soothing. It's been difficult lately with so much going on. What's going on? McAllen, have you and your friend Tully been enjoying your time at Leviathan? Oh, sure. I mean, come on. What's not to enjoy? I hope very little. Why do you think that is? What is it that makes Leviathan so special? Why do you think that is? Well... I tend to think that Leviathan's strength comes from its citizens. The way that different people from different times can come together not just to tolerate, but to cultivate. I think it's one of the reasons why nobody wants anything from you here. You've... You've created such an astounding space here in Leviathan, Evangeline. 
No one has ever done anything like this before in human history. I mean, everybody I met has been the leader of their field or done something incredibly impressive, like- Some might argue that my judgment on whom to convey immortality has been rather less than perfect. What are you talking about? I don't know, but for the first time in centuries, I feel frightened. Why? Please talk to me. I can understand whatever it is that's bothering you. We're... Well, we share a lot, you know? Very true, McAllen. It's Harlequin. It appears that he's set on extracting a bit of revenge on me for something I did a very long time ago. Evangeline told McAllen the story of Harlequin being caught planting the deadly virus in the Leviathan AI mainframe that now threatened the lives and security of the entire city. He didn't do it. I know he didn't do it. Sadly, he actually did. No, no, Evangeline, come on, that doesn't make sense. Harlequin would never have done something like that. He's not capable of anything like- I think you'd be amazed at what he is capable of. I know he helped me, more than I asked him to. He helped deactivate the Starstone that- He used you. He accepted the job to assist you only because he knew you would ultimately lead him back here, where he could do the most damage. I- I just can't believe that. Evangeline rose from the granite bench and walked a few feet away from McAllen to stare even deeper into the crystal pond before her. Tiny inch-long squids that each emitted a different vibrant color drifted lazily by Evangeline's feet. She fell silent for a moment. And when McAllen approached her, she could see that her face had grown wet and red from tears. I've tried to give men everything they wanted. Money, riches, immortality. I've even brought them back from the dead. And yet, they still always leave me. Betray me. They leave, McAllen. They always leave. No matter what I do, no matter what I give, they always leave. Evangeline, please. That's... That's terrible. Quite heartbreaking, actually. (sighs) Do you know why I called it the Eden Initiative? Because you believed that man was capable of creating his own utopian society, their own Garden of Eden. You wanted each person you brought here to dig into the deepest part of their creative selves and reach their fullest potential as human beings. Well, yes, that's true. But the concept of Eden is much deeper to me. It's about the search for redemption. Another chance to shed the weight of original sin that we all carry. A chance to learn from our mistakes. To begin again after we failed at first. Sadly, despite the thousand years I've walked the earth, I fear I've learned very little. I doubt that. Last night, I spoke with a woman at dinner that talked about how you secretly mobilized a cure to the Black Plague in the late 1300s to slow the spread of the disease through Europe. I also found out it was Leviathan that sent the correct coordinates of the sinking Titanic to the Carpathia in 1911, thus shaving hours off the rescue time. And the day before that, I met an SAS officer who told me how you helped Polish and French intelligence agencies decipher the Enigma Code in World War II. Those were nothing exceptional. They were merely necessary actions Only necessitated by the sole entity that has the power to change the world. You and your people that live here, hidden under six miles of ocean, completely unappreciated by mankind. I know things haven't been perfect here. And maybe people like Harlequin or even Senshin broke the peace you worked so hard to achieve. But when I look at the good that Leviathan has done in the world, not only do I think that you've learned quite a lot, but the rest of the world has got a lot to learn from you. (laughs) You're very kind, McCannon. Very kind. And I'm glad you like it here. I do hope you'll consider staying. Of course I would. I mean, I will. I was, um, 
was sort of waiting for an invitation. McCallan, I'm surprised at you. No invitation is needed. You're one of us. You're immortal. Leviathan is your home now, at least for as long as it exists. What's that supposed to mean? McCallan, I fear something very sinister is hovering around Leviathan. Something that has waited a long time. You're scaring me, Evangeline. I don't mean to, McAllen. I really don't. But you need to know that if anything happens to me, it will be up to you to lead them. They will rely on you. Who will? The citizens of Leviathan. You will be their leader. What? Me? What are you talking about? I'm not their leader. I can't- McAllen, you are the only one that can replace me. Only you have my ability to unlock the Starstones that come to us from Sorax. But I don't even know the first thing about running Leviathan City. I don't know how to get one of the Starstones from Sorax or- Operational procedures are the simplest aspects to learn, and there are many here who will assist you. They won't follow me. They will. Why? Because, ultimately, they need you. You see, McAllen, you haven't been immortal very long. It probably doesn't feel that much different, save for a few inches of height and some toned arms. But sooner or later, it will. It will feel different when you watch those around you die. When you watch your lover perish slowly to the ravages of old age. When all of your family leaves you, and you find yourself bounding closest to the children, because you know they'll be around the longest. When all of the worries that consume mortal man, like money, marriage, profession, health, and housing, are no longer applicable to you, then you will feel different. Initially, you will be sad, but when that passes, you'll feel powerful and invulnerable. And before long, it will be the feeling of removed invincibility that will be your motivation to rise out of bed every morning. That is, until the weakness starts. Until you wake up one strange morning and feel every cell in your body ache when you can't remember what it was to feel godlike and you will give anything to return to the state of bliss that you enjoyed for the last century. And for the first time, as long as you could remember, you actually experience fear. Then? Then you'll come to me, and together we'll enter the Starstone Chamber, a sealed-off private area of Leviathan Cathedral, deep in its catacombs, an area I have secured away from the rest of Leviathan, and only I am privy to. The citizens must don special hoods during the ceremony, and swear their loyalty to the Eden Initiative. Then I lay a hand on the Starstone, and a hand on the citizen, and allow myself to be a conduit for energy and health, and allow immortality to flow back into the veins of the afflicted. They need me, McAllen, and there could come a day, soon I fear, that they will need you. Why do the citizens wear hoods? Mainly to maintain the secrecy of that area of the cathedral. Also to block their minds from any unintended distractions. What are you talking about, distractions? McAllen... The Starstone is not the only secret that I've kept in that area of Leviathan Cathedral. If you are truly going to lead, I feel like you should know everything. I get the feeling I don't want to know everything. <laughs> you truly are wise beyond your mortal years, McAllen. But in order to lead Leviathan, you must be aware of everything that is being constructed here. Constructed? I regret that I have kept certain aspects of our mortal existence secret from the general population here in Leviathan. I have had to hide something terrible and regrettable. Evangeline stared at McAllen, waiting for her to respond. McAllen waited for a moment and then nodded slowly. Tell me what is hidden here, Evangeline. I promise that you can trust me. <sighs> 
What did they tell about my origins? How did they tell you that all of this, our immortality, came to be? Cedric told me the story of Sumner Talk. He told me about the aliens that crashed here on Earth and how you saved them and brought them back to health. And what did you say? I, I was amazed. And yet, you never asked the most important question. I don't understand. Why were the aliens on Earth in the first place? What do you mean? Their ship crash-landed. I thought it wasn't- It's true that the aliens' vessel malfunctioned and forced an emergency landing. But McAllen, their presence on Earth was no accident, nor was it their first. Wait, wait, what are you trying to say? Why were the aliens- Goddess. What's going on? I don't know. I haven't heard that type of alarm in over 70 years. What kind of alarm is that? Perimeter alarm. Someone is trying to break out of Leviathan. What? Hurry. We need to get to the war room immediately. Evangeline grabbed McAllen's hand, and the two of them sprinted out of the Emerald Courtyard and entered one of the high-speed elevators in the cathedral. I thought the war room was out above the city. Don't we need to go outside There to- are faster ways to get there. When the elevator stopped, the two of them dashed to a transport pod contained within a clear lucite tube that spanned high above Leviathan City, running close to the top of the Great Cavern. The pod contained two seats side by side, and McCallum felt a burst of energy thrusting them through the tube as soon as she was seated. As the pod sped across the sky of Leviathan, the clear tube gave an impressive view of the city, and McCallum couldn't help herself from becoming lost in the grandeur of Leviathan. Tiny aspects like a misty waterfall spouting forth from the cavern rock, and a pristine playing field with dark red and blue grasses tucked between two canals all revealed themselves to McCallum at this height. But despite the beauty and the architecture, even from this distance, McAllen could see people urgently moving between buildings, clearly reacting to the alarm sounding throughout the city. I hope whatever's happening doesn't hurt this place, this beautiful city. I, I want this to be my home. The transport pod veered away from the ceiling and descended down towards the terraced glass structures that clung to the mid and upper parts of the cavern wall. Long panes of jade glass stretched out along the cavern length and McAllen could see the pull tube she was riding terminate at one of the largest of these structures. Before the pod had reached a full stop, Evangeline leapt out and walked briskly towards a set of black double doors. McAllen hurried to follow closely behind. A guard opened the door for them and quickly handed Evangeline a tablet computer, blinking urgently. Milady, I have Benu on coded channel 6. I've got it. Benu, report! Benu appeared on the hollow screen without his trademark white hood. McAllen recoiled when she saw how truly hideous his face actually looked. More like a primitive animal than a man, she thought, but more than deformed. Benu's eyes were filled with tears and what was left of his nose looked completely dislodged from his face. Blood dripped from his nose and mouth and she could see bruises across his face along with lacerations on his neck. Harlequin! Harlequin assaulted me and has escaped into the city. Benu, you've been hurt. You have to- I must do nothing. We have to catch Harlequin immediately. Eve, you must act quickly. Not your face, Benu. My face isn't important now. Harlequin has the key to the virus. If he escapes, our entire computer system will crash and Leviathan will be flooded. We must apprehend him at all costs, Evangeline. At all costs. Goddess. Send every single guard division to the West Bay. That's where he'll be making his break. We can't do that. What about the area of the cathedral? I said all guard divisions. Everyone, Evangeline. If 
Harlequin escapes, we'll never deactivate the computer virus, and we'll soon have far bigger problems than a lapse in babysitting. We need every single security personnel turning this city upside down and blocking any possible escape route. But Bennu, the West Bay, that's that's all the way on the other side of Leviathan. Why would Harlequin travel so far? Because that's exactly what you'd expect him not to do. He's trying to do the unexpected. We must send every guard division that we have to apprehend him. All guard divisions, including reserves. Get them all over to the West Bay immediately. I'll coordinate the operation, but you need to authorize the unit. I... I think... Eve, act now or we'll all die. You have to save us. Very well, Banu. All guard units, this is Evangeline. The fugitive Harlequin has escaped and is at large in the wire. He must be apprehended at all costs. I'm transferring all military command to Viceroy Benning. We'll be coordinating the manhunt. This situation takes full priority over our operations. Priority Delta 6. Evangeline placed the tablet back on the long mahogany desk of the war room and everything became still for a moment. Come on, McAllen. Where? Where are you going? To the West Bay of Leviathan. I want to be there when they catch him. All right, think. How the hell do I get out of Leviathan? There can only be two ways. The keyhole network. That has to be on lockdown at this point, especially on this end. Or a transfer vessel. I could try to get one of the dock ports open and commandeer one of the launch vessels, but but how the hell would I get past the pressure sheet? What the hell would prevent half the fleet from chasing me down and blowing me out of the water? <sighs> Damn you, Banner. You knew I'd have no place to hide. All guard units be advised that Central AI has initiated lockdown status. The traitor known as Harlequins has large and fired the city. Target should be captured alive, but lethal force is authorized. Move, move! No time for self-pity. Time's running out. If they catch you, they'll kill you. Harlequin quickly crouched behind a cluster of large metal crates positioned in the shadows of a vast hangar bay. Command, we've done a complete sweep of the western city zone. Squad 4 has less than 10 more streets to check, but I think if we can order Squad 6 to flank in the Genesis zone, we'll create a wedge force. They have to get out of here. Evangeline thinks I was the one who planted the virus. Fucking Bennu has her brainwashed. Good work. Start the flush northward, but I want two teams to check the access ports to the right leading up to the terrace level. I'll take my men to conduct recon in the hangar bay. Remember, Harlequin is a master escape artist. Yes, an escape artist who has met his match. Damn it! Yes, sir. Even if I escape from Leviathan, where am I going to go? With 35,000 feet underwater, rather limits my options. They know I'm trapped. You think you're going to win, don't you, Bennu? Harlequin peered from behind the crates and carefully spied the huge variety of ships that were stationed by their respective launch tubes. The smallest were the Vespa-class vessels that resembled small one-man fighter craft. A few were modified in two-seat configurations, but the slender fuselage and curved, swept-back wings that met behind the body of the craft clearly indicated speed and maneuverability. Beside them sat the large Zephyr-class vessels that resembled oversized sperm whales with two sets of short, stubby fins as stabilizers. These craft could transport up to six passengers and were commonly used for lengthy manual transport missions to various surface shore points. Harlequin reminisced about learning to pilot all of these fantastic vehicles so many centuries ago, but then he remembered. It doesn't matter. All of the launch tubes are in lockdown. Stealing any of these vessels won't matter if I can't get to the goddamn ocean. He cursed himself not following the basic rules of engagement that kept him alive for centuries. You idiot, you know better. Never enter a room without knowing how to escape. Instead of letting yourself reminisce with Evangeline, you should have been planning a damn escape route. Fuck McCallum. Fuck Anton. 
Fuck me. God damn it, what a fool I've been. He continued to curse himself but stopped when one particular craft caught his eye. It was a short squat craft that looked like a fat tortoise and was covered with brown dust. Instead of propulsion jets and stabilizers, this cave hog class vessel had thick tire treads and abrasion armor. It was a mining vessel that the Leviathan group used to cultivate terramite and other rare alloys from the deep open sea, as well as continue to expand the great cavern in which Leviathan City resided. Four large spherical grinders sat recessed in the nose of the craft, while the rusty-looking pressure hatch on the top looked devoid of any keycard electronic entry system. Bingo. It's about a hundred feet to the cave hog, and there's at least ten guards between me and the hatch. I have to create some sort of distraction in order to... A small hover cam descended from the ceiling of the hangar bay and floated thirty feet in front of the crate Harlequin was hiding behind. He jerked back instantly and tried to meld into the shadows for protection. Infrared will nail me in seconds. It's now or never. Harlequin reached to the ground, grabbing a metal crowbar, and sprang up, snapping his arm behind his back for a massive tennis serve. There! The far wall! Move! Move! All ten guards, plus the patrol squad stationed outside the entrance to the hangar bay, hurried to the far wall near the launch tubes, where a sudden explosion had just occurred. Now's my chance! Harlequin exploded from the shadows, sprinting to the cave hog in under two seconds. He leapt to the upper access hatch in a single jump and crawled inside before any guard had seen him. He quickly climbed into the cockpit and activated the locking mechanism for the entry hatch. The cave hog gave a low rumble as all the lights on the cockpit illuminated, and a tactical view of Leviathan City appeared on the right monitor. He began tapping furiously on the keyboard on the left side of the command chair. Damn it, just as I thought. And whose fucking virus has Leviathan's AI so tweaked I can't hack any of the standard encryption code. I can't even open the main airlock in this part of Leviathan, let alone lower the pressure shields. Hey, hey, who's in there? Open this vessel immediately. The city is on lockdown. You have to get out of there right now. There was no window on the cockpit of the mining vessel, but Harlequin could see on the external camera monitors that a growing crowd of Gravelar's elite guard was assembling around the craft. The mining vessel was built sturdier than an M1 tank due to the severe abrasion, pressure, and heat that it experienced digging for terramite in the deep ocean. It could probably resist minutes of direct gunfire from the guards, but that wasn't what concerned Harlequin. If they were smart, they could block the water intake vents for engine cooling. The ship wouldn't make it more than half a mile before the engine overheated, and we are, regrettably, more than seven miles under the sea. I'd be dead in the water, literally. That's right. They're firing now, but pretty soon they'll realize that their gunfire is ineffective. Then they'll radio to Ben. Benno is smart. He'll know the trick about the intake valve, which means I don't have much time. Gunfire is useless. There's no way we can penetrate the hole with these weapons. Hemsworth, pull me up the schematics of the cave hog right away. The voice for wants to show us something about Shh, the that water. was quicker than I expected. This is going to be messy. I guess there's only one way to do this. On Tweedle Avenue, the largest and grandest boulevard in Leviathan, many of the citizens gathered in small clusters to whisper about the security alert that had been imposed by Viceroy Banu and Evangeline. The more daring citizens even whispered that the infamous Harlequin may have ventured back to Leviathan. Many of them, women especially, confessed that they would do much to catch a mere glimpse of the man who had once broken Evangeline's heart. Little did they know, their secret wish would soon be fulfilled.
the immense mining vessel burst through the thick cavern wall and dropped 40 feet down onto Tweedle Avenue. The cobblestone of the street shattered into pieces under the heavy tread of the cave hog as it roared down the middle of the main boulevard. People screamed and ran for cover to avoid getting crushed. Over 50 guards, including members of Gravelar's elite strike force, shot electrostatic bursts in an attempt to short-circuit the vessel. But Harlequin had already made a sharp right turn on Abel Avenue and was heading directly towards Leviathan Cathedral. The Leviathan Cathedral airlock is maintained on a separate isolated computer server. It was designed to facilitate small underwater crafts and pedestrian traffic in aquatic G-suits for the workers that created the actual cathedral and carved it out of the canyon wall. If it was the way in for McCallum, Tully and myself, damn well better be my way out. The two guards that have remained at their post protecting the entrance to the vast cathedral despite Banu's orders knelt down low to aim their rifles at the massive tread bearings of the cave hog. They fired several shots before finally leaping out of the way to avoid the charging vessel that smashed into the wooden entry doors. Four massive grinder balls in the front of the cave hog shredded the colossal entrance doors. Luckily, the cathedral was mostly deserted, as all of the guards had been deployed at the city's western tip, near the hangar bay where Harlequin had commandeered the vessel, and most of the administrative staff was sequestered in the war room, trying to deactivate the computer virus that was plaguing Leviathan's AI. No one to stop me. I wonder... Harlequin drove the miner into the cathedral loading bay, where he, Anton, McAllen, and Tully had first entered Leviathan in their Nankatsu mech suits. He smashed aside the other light submarine craft and deep-sea exposure suits that were lined up in the hangar. Harlequin positioned the cave hog in the airlock elevator that led upwards into the chapel of the cathedral. Gunfire from incoming guards lit up the thick sides of the miner like flickering starlight. Once the cave hog was situated inside, the heavy doors of the airlock started to close. But suddenly, out of his cockpit monitor, Harlequin saw it. Fuck! Two soldiers rushed forward carrying a massive tetranitrous rocket launcher balanced between the two men's shoulders. The barrel of the launcher extended some ten feet beyond the men holding it. Harlequin tapped the keyboard furiously trying to get the airlock doors to close faster, but it was too late. Through the monitors, he could see the hull of the ship being covered in red targeting dots. Shit, not yet. Please don't let it be yet. The rocket exploded out of the launcher, instantly breaking the sound barrier within the room. It streaked directly at the cave hog positioned in the elevator. Harlequin closed his eyes and quickly thought to himself, It was a good run. A good run indeed. Tetranitrous rockets slammed into the enormous airlock doors that had just managed to lock in the closed position. Fire and a massive pressure wave ripped through the loading bay, flipping mech suits and the small submersibles end over end, crushing the guards that had assembled there. Blood and ash stained the walls and smoke obscured any trace of visibility within the room. Harlequin let go of the long breath that he had been holding for over a minute as the elevator safely containing him and his still functional cave hog rose upwards, leaving Leviathan City beneath him and bringing the ship closer to the deep ocean. It takes over a minute for the elevator to go from Leviathan to the chapel of the cathedral. By now, Bennu will have ordered every ship into their launch tubes to intercept and destroy me. By the time I reach the cathedral steps, I'll be exterminated. There has to be a way, something they haven't thought of. The airlock rose quickly, but lurched to a stop upon reaching the great altar of Leviathan Cathedral. The powerful high beams of the mining vessel illuminated the massive stone pillars of the chapel, rising almost 500 feet upwards. The Luma flora glowed brightly behind the ornate stained glass, casting eerie rays of light upon the exquisite statues standing like lonely sentries along the wide central aisle. 
for one small moment, everything was still, and it saddened Harlequin that a cathedral so vast and so beautiful was eternally devoid of any parishioners. So empty, so quiet. Suddenly, a loud rumble from the cave hog punctured the stillness. It sprang forward in an awkward manner as oil oozed from one of the bullet holes that had penetrated its thick hide, while several broken hatches flapped loosely on its side. The vessel downshifted a gear and accelerated sharply as it raced forward down the central aisle, 200 feet before the vessel reached the great doors to the cathedral. The four large grinder balls re-emerged from the front of the craft and started to spin furiously. The statues that had dutifully lined the central aisle for centuries shattered from the slightest brush with the grinder balls. Soon, the entire cathedral shook with destructive energy as the cave hog bulldozed its way towards the exit. But outside, on the floor of the Mariana Trench, the scene was far more still. Thirty Vespa-class assault vessels hovered silently in formation, with their carbine rod cannons focused squarely on the enormous doors. More time had elapsed than any of the pilots would have thought necessary. Their fingers twitched nervously on their control screens. They were ready for battle. Ready to fulfill Viceroy Banu's orders. Ready to kill, even if they... The cave hog erupted out of the shattered remains of the great wooden doors of Leviathan Cathedral. It roared out of the temple and lifted into the water as it soared over the mammoth steps to the cathedral. Target lock. I've got a good lock. Lock confirmed. Permission to engage. Open fire! Thirty violent flashes of light pierced the darkness of the deep ocean. Thirty rounds of high-density tungsten rods screamed at the mining vessel, shattering the rear tread assembly and leaving scores of metal wounds that wept air bubbles into the abyss. remained of the vessel continued forward, carried by its initial momentum. It tumbled sideways underneath the formation of Vespa-class fighters and limped on what remained of its damaged treads. The mighty ship was now half disintegrated, and flashes of fire ignited, extinguished themselves, and then reignited again. He's trying to cut left. He'll never make it to the main trench. Can't hit the trench wall. Let's pull in closer. Alpha team, I want Holoquin surrounded. Beta team, take the formation ahead and form a blockade to the main trench. He's not going anywhere. The wounded vessel veered to the left in a desperate attempt to avoid being surrounded, but the tread drive underneath the mining ship was badly damaged and suddenly snapped free, becoming tangled in the rotors. Instead of pushing the tread forward, the rotor lifted what remained of the rear of the ship upwards before the entire craft flipped over on its back like an overturned crab. The rotors continued to spin in vain and more oil leaked out of the vessel. It was helpless, and the Vespa-class fighters moved in quickly like angry hornets. End of the line, Harlequin. Finish it. Once again, 30 brilliant flashes of light streaked through the darkness and exploded into the shattered hull of Harlequin's cave hog. Shreds of metal burst outwards and absolutely nothing larger than a small finger remained. The vessel had been obliterated at point-blank range, vaporizing the cave hog and anyone within it. Target destroyed, sir. Returning to base. The 30 Vespa-class fighting ships that were scattered around the floating remains of Harlequin in the cave hog reassembled neatly into three parallel lines. The orderly formation quietly banked left towards the entry ports into Leviathan City. But less than a mile away, a white figure emerged from behind one of the hulking gargoyles guarding the entrance to Leviathan Cathedral. The figure barely moved at all, until the last of the Vespa-class vehicles had returned to their ensconced launch ports deep within the trench wall beside the cathedral. 
It stood roughly ten feet tall and resembled the Michelin Man mascot with its puffy arms and legs. However, the bionic articulated titanium hands and glowing red eye sockets with the thick plasti-steel helmet gave the figure a more sinister appearance. <sighs> I expected a better death than that. Well, now the hard part. Harlequin picked up an enormous fabric bag next to him. It stood almost as tall as he did in his deep water exposure suit, but despite the size of the bag, it moved effortlessly in the water due to its near-neutral buoyancy. Harlequin's fingers moved clumsily with the hydraulic-assisted fingers of his suit, but managed to loosen the bag labeled Cavehog Rescue Lift Bag and rapidly pulled out fabric until he reached a small manual control panel. This will be interesting. If you don't help us, you'll die too. Do you really think I care? I care. I care now. I want to live. I want to live. His body trembled slightly, and his damaged hand ached as the exposure suit's fabric brushed over the raw nerve endings of his burnt flesh. Doing the best he could, he manipulated several switches on the manual control panel and quickly clipped two carabiners to his exposure suit. Slowly, the fabric bag unfolded to form a large teardrop-shaped lift balloon, rapidly rising upwards. After ten meters, the riser lines were pulled taut, and Harlequin found himself slowly pulled upwards towards the surface of the sea. Everything around him was pitch dark, and the smallest bit of light that came from Leviathan Cathedral was now fading away in the distance beneath him. Despite his best efforts, he couldn't stop his breath from quickening as the ocean currents surged more forcefully around him. He knew of the rare phenomenon known as underwater storms, but fought hard to bury the thought in his mind. He quickly activated the headlights surrounding the dark helmet dome of his exposure suit and urgently started twisting the dials of the control panel. He knew that if he rose too quickly, he would likely spring a leak in his exposure suit. A small puncture the size of a pinprick would deliver a spray so powerful that it could slice clean through his body. But without enough air pressure, the lift balloon could also deflate and sink downwards costing precious battery power. Furthermore, if he didn't vent the balloon properly, the rapidly expanding air could cause the balloon to expand explode, sending him back down to the bottom of the ocean in a suit weighing over a ton. The journey back to the surface of the ocean would take over seven hours. Seven hours in cold, icy, pitch, blackness. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. This is Evangeline. Understood. I'm on my way. Who was that? The chief of the elite guard unit. As Benu suspected, they think they've found Harlequin in West Bay Hangar. McAllen and Evangeline raced over to one of the pull tubes that took them from the war room high above Leviathan all the way down to street level. A pod bike was waiting for them, with the driver already holding the door open for the two women. The pod bike resembled a standard motorcycle, but was twice as long as a Harley Davidson, and at least three times as wide, with what appeared to be heavy-duty off-road tires. A large pod section was located over the rear tire that contained enough space for two seats side by side. The driver sat on the exterior of the bike, thus giving the impression of a high-tech motorized rickshaw. McAllen and Evangeline quickly entered the pod before the pod bike shot forward, pushing McAllen back in her seat. Are they going to kill Harlequin if they find him? My order stated their capture was the preferable option. So they could kill him? McAllen, 
I realize you think he's helped you, but you have to understand that... Evangeline stopped mid-sentence and stared at the silver bracelet on her wrist. On it, a blue light was blinking rapidly, and McCallum watched Evangeline's face turn aghast in horror. Goddess, what's wrong? Turn around! We need to get back to the cathedral right away! But ma'am, Viceroy Benu's orders were... I don't give a fuck what Benu's orders are! Turn around now and get us back to the cathedral as fast as you can! I don't care what you have to do, move! Evangeline, what the hell happened? What's wrong? My deepest secret in Leviathan is about to explode. The scene was unearthly. That was the only way Oberlin Sinclair could describe what was happening in the keyhole chamber deep within the bowels of Mount Chenglung. It was literally unearthly to be staring at two clearly alien beings that gazed right back at him with concentrated orange eyes through a glowing dimensional portal. On either side of the aliens stood two men. The first was a tall man wearing a white robe and a white hood that obscured his face. On the other side was a Chinese man who seemed to be urgently scanning the room on Oberlin's side of the keyhole. The aliens took no note of the two men standing beside them, but rather stared intently at Oberlin and Whit Roberts. What the hell are those? I'd expect you to be a bit savvier, Oberlin, especially given the fact that you already spoke to them through the briefcase you stole from me. Oberlin stared slack jawed at the two nine-foot blue-skinned humanoids that possessed no mouth and blazing orange eyes. The two of them were clearly aware of Oberlin's fear and seemed to stare directly into his soul. Those... Those two are- Their names are Elgar and Karana, and they are from the planet Sorax. They've been held against their will in Leviathan for almost a thousand years. We're here to rescue them. My father. That's- that's my father. Through the center of the glowing keyhole, Miley could see the smaller Chinese man on the far right smiling and beaming at her. Father! Father! He can't hear you. Sound waves can't travel through the keyhole. The tall man in the white robe and white hood raised his hand high in a salutary gesture towards Whit Roberts. He then slowly stepped forward and walked through the keyhole. Mr. Whit Roberts, I assume. Viceroy Benu, it is an honor, sir. Let me through the portal. I want to see my father. And you must be my lead. Dr. Swee's daughter. I am. Well, your father must love you a great deal. He went through an extraordinary amount of effort to bring you here. May I please see him? Well, of course you can. He's waiting for you on the other side of the keyhole. Just go ahead and walk through it. It's quite safe, I assure you. My Lee walked closer to the glowing blue portal and found herself squinting as she got closer to it. The flashes and swirls of sapphire light mesmerized her, and the image of her father through the keyhole disintegrated and then instantly rematerialized. Weesh! My Lee! What the hell are you doing? He's my father. He's why I came here, Oberlin. You know that. Yeah, but you have no idea what's on the other side of that merry-go-round. I know that my father is, and that's all I need to know right now. Whoever else is on the other side of that, that thing, is friends with Wood Roberts. You and I. I both know that's a very bad thing. Wit stared at the aliens. I'm trained. I'll deal. I'm going with you. No. No, you are not. Damn it, Miley. I want to protect you. This isn't some male ego talking. I'm just trying to reason with you. You don't even know what lies over there. Give me one good reason why we shouldn't approach this as a team. I am approaching this like a team. That's why I need you here, Oberlin, on this side, to make sure I get back. You're the only one I can trust. The only person that doesn't have an agenda. I need you to be able to bring me back. Don't let Whit Roberts do anything unsavory. Can I count on you? Ah, come on. That's not fair, you know. Can I count on you? You got me. You know that. Then keep me safe by staying here. Can I count on you? Yeah, 
Yeah, you can count on me. But you get your ass back through the keyhole fast. Got it? Got it. Keep the door open and you'll never know I was gone. And then Miley threw her arms around Oberlin's neck and pulled him close to her, kissing him forcefully. She let him melt into her and the closeness made her feel more whole than she had in years. She didn't want to stop, but she sensed Oberlin was about to say something. And before he could, Miley turned and leapt into the blue void before her. And then... Oberlin was alone. Before we bring the extraterrestrials through, I need to know the security status of our extraction. Secure. We've got zip lines in place to take us back topside, and thanks to the genetic work shared between you and Dr. Marcane, we have four enforcers standing sentry and ready to extract the cargo. Black Door has kept up our end of the rescue mission, sir. The facility is secure. If the facility is so secure, then please inform me who on earth is this sorry-looking individual. No reason to be rude, my friend. The name is Oberlin St. Clair. Engineer extraordinaire of the Hail Mary, along with Captain Jeffrey Tully. At your service, Mr. Uh, Benu, was it? Is he part of your Black Door team, Mr. Roberts? No. Then kill him. He knows too much now. <laughs> with pleasure. I'm going back through the keyhole to guide the aliens through. But before Benu could walk back through the portal, chaos erupted on the other side of the keyhole. The reinforced metal door at the far end of the room swung open and two women with flaming red hair sprinted into the chamber. Come on, I don't understand. What is the secret, Evangeline? What are you... Oh my god! Evangeline and McCallum were stunned by what they saw. Miley and her father stood defensively in the corner, while Elgar and Kirana's orange eyes widened with fear at the sight of Evangeline. At the far end of the room was a section lined by thick iron bars that was clearly a prison cell. An explosion had taken place as evidenced by the debris and broken iron bars that lay scattered on the ground. Dr. Sweet! What in the goddess's name are you doing? The aliens have a right to freedom. They are being held against their will. You lied to them, Evangeline. Lied to all of us. You utter fool. You'll kill us all, you imbecile. If the aliens leave Leviathan, it will lead to the end of the world. We want to be free. I won't allow you to be the jailer of these beings any longer. Over my dead body. Dr. Swee leapt towards the aliens to pull them through the keyhole portal. But before he even got close, Evangeline quickly pulled a small device from her cloak. The object was slightly smaller than a construction brick and appeared to be fashioned from pure obsidian. She pointed the razor gun at Dr. Swee's head and squeezed the brick hard. I won't tolerate another traitor. A small disc the size of a quarter sprang out over 20 times the speed of sound. As the small disc left the firing chamber, five small crystal threads extended from its radius. Each deadly tendril was over a hundred times sharper than a standard razor blade. And when the disc made contact with Dr. Sui's neck, the results were horrific. The spinning tendrils sliced through the bone and flesh as easily as they passed through the air. The impact of the actual disc against his body was so great that it hurled him against the far right corner of the room, and what remained of his disembodied skull struck the far left corner. <gasps> Miley rushed to the decapitated body of her father and knelt on the ground holding him. Blood still pumped in spurts out of Dr. Sui's neck covering Miley, but she was too forlorn to care. In fact, she was so lost in sorrow that she paid no mind to the aliens, McAllen or Evangeline. All she could think about was the fact that her father was gone and she had been only seconds too late. The agony crushed her and left her in a catatonic state, but Evangeline took immediate action. She rushed to the controls of the massive keyhole in order to shut it down. I can't 
Let the aliens escape. They must stay in Leviathan. The aliens moved quickly over to the portal, trying to leap through it, but eventually got to the keyhole control module first to sever the connection between Leviathan and Mount Shenglun. But before her hand could reach the controls, her face was met by a hard, determined fist thrown with thousands of years of resentment behind it. You arrogant bitch! Banu leapt through the keyhole and materialized back in the portal chamber in Leviathan with his fist extended. He knocked Evangeline clean off the ground and blood leaked out of the side of her mouth. Oh, I have wanted to do this for over a millennia. You rotten, corrupt hypocrite. You made me your little lapdog. I listened to you, obeyed you, gave up the church and God for you. And then, then you choose Harlequin over me? Banu brought his leg back and launched his foot into Evangeline's eye socket. Her whole body became airborne as her head snapped backwards so hard it would have instantly killed a mortal human. I cannot begin to describe the pleasure I will take from watching you die. But not before you get to see all of your dreams become shattered in mere moments. You see, I was the one who planted the computer virus, not Harlequin. When the virus finally breaks through the AI defense network, it will release a series of instructions to lower the pressure shield and flood Leviathan. The beauty is that no one on Earth will ever know of its existence. Leviathan will just be another lost city, as if it never even existed at all. Of course, that's not exactly true. I will know, won't I? And the aliens, Elgar and Karana will know. That's because I'm taking them with me. I've planned all of this to free the aliens you've kept imprisoned against their will. Just so. You, you fool. Evangeline pressed the emergency beacon button on the silver bracelet she wore on her wrist. Oh, I don't think that will help you, Eve. You see, thanks to my direction, we've already sent our entire security detail to the other side of Leviathan City to chase down Harlequin. Even most of your precious cathedral guards. It will take them several minutes to get all the way back here. And I promise you, that you do not have several minutes left to live. And since you told virtually no one about your dirty little secret down here in the catacombs of the cathedral, keeping the aliens that gave you your immortality prisoner for a thousand years, I'm not sure anyone even knows this room exists. I guess that's what happens when you keep too many secrets. <laughs> you Harlequin will kill you when he learns that you framed him? Used him as a perfect foil to deceive you, plant the computer virus, and then distract your entire security force? No, I don't think he will kill me. That would be very difficult, given the fact that he's become crab food for every mud-dwelling vermin living on the floor of the Mariana Trench. You pathetic coward. I never should have saved you. I should have let you burn like the rest of them at Sumnadok. Oh, do shut up. It was never about you saving and rehabilitating me. It was all always about yourself. You used me to assuage your own guilt over the murder of an entire village of innocent people. You never cared about me. The only person beside yourself that you ever cared about was Harlequin. It's not true. I cared for you once. I thought you changed. You have to stop this, Benu. Please don't let- My name is Kriegerson. Benu struck Evangeline so hard and so quickly that she felt confused when her body crashed into the stone wall of the chamber. Her head was gushing blood and she found herself struggling to stay conscious. I must fight. I have to, to protect. No, 
Please. But her body betrayed her by pulling Evangeline into unconsciousness. Her last vision was of Banu pulling back his hood to reveal his disgusting, deformed face. His hands were outstretched and reaching for her, trembling with malice. I can't wait to feel your life finally leave your immortal body to slip away through my fingers. Yeah, we'll wait a little longer! McCallum picked up one of the iron bars lying on the ground and swung it hard against Banu's face. The unexpected blow sent Banu reeling against the wall, clutching his face. McCallum knew that the sudden blow had taken Banu off guard, and she quickly wound back for another strike. The iron bar ripped through the tight skin on Banu's face and tore a three-inch gash from the corner of his mouth to his left eye socket, where his eyeball seemed to almost be hanging from its supporting optic nerve. You won't be able to see well. I need to get one more shot in so that I can get out of here. McCallum threw all of her weight into her next blow, but Banu felt the attack coming and sidestepped her advance. She tripped over his leg and was sent sprawling on the floor. McAllen spun around quickly to regain her footing, but Banu was already upon her, clamping his enormous hands around her neck. She could feel his hot breath inches from her face, and his thumbs overlapped on her larynx and pushed down, trying to close her windpipe permanently. Well, I must say that this is an unexpected pleasure. I get to kill two Evangelines tonight. You know, you look just like she did so many centuries ago. Banu glanced over at Evangeline, who still lay motionless on the floor, bleeding from her head. But you're far weaker than she is. A rather cheap copy, if I do say so myself. You know, that's all you are, McAllen. Just a bad copy of a deluded woman grown in a dirty test tube. Nobody will ever miss you. Actually, Mr. Banu, for such a smart guy, you really got your facts pretty mixed up. Tully! Tully entered the room, holding Evangeline's razor gun that had been lying on the ground. He walked towards the portal. You see, despite what you might think, I would miss McCallan. A whole lot, actually. So much so that I might even feel the need to kill someone that would prevent me from seeing her again. And that someone seems to be you. Now, I haven't known you for a real long time, Mr. Banu, but my impression is that you are what we call, in nautical terms, a major league asshole. And from the position McCallan is in, I think I'm understating the description. So forgive me for saying so, but I think it would be your sorry ass that nobody would ever miss. So right now, you're gonna let McCallan go, or so help me God, I will use this thing to blow your inflated head to kingdom come. Really, Mr. Tully? Yes, really, Mr. Shithead. Because, quite frankly, I don't think the situation is quite so clear-cut. You see, I briefly had the pleasure of meeting one of your colleagues, a Mr. Oberlin St. Clair, I believe. What? Oberlin? Oberlin is alive? That's... Wait, where is he? Where is he, you son of a bitch? You fucking tell me right now. I don't need to tell you. You can just look for yourself. Tully turned his head to peer through the shimmering keyhole and was dumbfounded by what he saw. On the other side of the portal, Oberlin St. Clair was in the fight of his life with another man, and from the looks of it, Oberlin was losing. Tully could see the man grabbing Oberlin's shirt and headbutting him repeatedly before throwing him down on the ground. His vision through the keyhole was blurry, but Tully could make out that Oberlin was bleeding from his shoulder and left hand and had multiple bruises on his face. Your friend's not doing so well, is he, Mr. Tully? Just for your own edification, the gentleman he's fighting with is named Wit Roberts, who is a trained assassin. I just gave him orders to kill your little friend, which means that he probably doesn't have much more time to live. Perhaps another 15 to 20 seconds, maybe 30 if he fights well or gets a lucky shot in, which means that you, Mr. Tully, have some very serious choices to make. Do you want to stay here and save McAllen, or do you want to save your friend, Mr. Tully? 
such a difficult choice to make. Tully! Tully's soul was ripping in two pieces. He could peer through the keyhole and see that Oberlin was desperately trying to stay alive. The man fighting Oberlin was close to getting a sleeper hold on him, while Oberlin kept trying to kick out his opponent's legs. It was the worst form of torture to watch his best friend in a desperate fight getting brutally beaten and not being able to help him. But McAllen cried out to him. Please, Tully! <sighs> reminding him that she desperately needed his help. Banu stood behind McCallum with his one hand on her throat while the other held her two hands behind her back. She was stronger as an immortal, but she was no match for Banu, who had been basking in immortal energy for the past thousand years. Tully, please, Tully, you can't let him escape with the aliens. It'll mean the end of the world. You can't. Tully, please, help me, Tully. I love you. Please. I'm, I'm so sorry, McCallum. And without even looking at her... Tully leapt through the portal in a flash of blue light that filled the chamber, leaving McAllen alone with Banu. <laughs> McAllen's mouth widened in disbelief, and she felt her soul crumble within her. Tully was gone, no longer in the room, no longer in her life. He had left her alone to die at the hands of a madman. Oh, McAllen. Lovers quarrel. Perhaps you really didn't live up to Evangeline's skill in the bedroom. <laughs> you bastard. Looks like you don't have as many friends as you imagined. That'll be a wonderful parting thought as I crush the life out of your worthless body. Well, consider me a friend with benefits. Anton! Anton stood in the doorway to the keyhole chamber, but before Banu could even say a word, Anton fired three nerve toxin darts hitting Banu's face, neck, and chest. A look of tragic surprise was trapped on Banu's face. His mouth was scowled in an ugly sneer and he froze in disbelief that anyone could possibly challenge him. That anyone could ever beat him. No! No! He tried in vain to squeeze down on McAllen's neck, but the toxin acted too quickly. Banu's muscles froze and rejected any command from his brain, which was becoming increasingly disconnected from his body. In seconds, his heart refused to beat any further, and his arms and legs locked up like stiff boards. Anton sprinted over with his fist extended and struck Banu's face so hard that the toxin dart was pushed through Banu's skull into his brain. Banu's body was launched several yards across the room, but Banu, once known long ago as Kriegerson, was dead before his body ever reached the ground. Jesus. Anton! Oh my god, Anton! Thank you, thank you! McCallum ran to Anton and threw her arms around him. My god, I thought that was it. I thought he was gonna kill me. Jesus, I... I missed you. I missed you, Anton. Are you okay? I'm fine, McAllen. Are you okay? Did that son of a bitch hurt you? Come here. Let me see your neck. I'm... I'm okay. Really. How did you find me here? Tully brought me, actually. I was recovering in the infirmary when he came to see me. He was drunk, not surprisingly. But we started to talk for a while, and several hours, actually. And obviously we were talking about you. And so we decided we wanted to pay you a visit, and we saw the guards in the medical unit suddenly run off, so Tully helped me out of bed. We started walking over to the cathedral to see if you were okay. Tully, that fucking pig abandoned me. He just, just left me, Anton. Left me to die without even a thought. He just fucking ran out. <clears throat> I can't believe what he did. Wait, wait. Evangeline told me this area of Leviathan was off limits. That she kept it hidden. How did she you- She probably did it because of the Seraxians. It's quite a secret she's kept here. One that will have serious ramifications, but... 
I'll admit, I didn't know exactly where you were, but at some point Evangeline activated a locator beacon using attunement. I heard about what was going on with Harlequin, and I guess Bennu put the entire Leviathan guard on alert. He was smart enough to have the entire security situated on the other side of Leviathan while he tried to make his escape. When I sensed Evangeline's signal, Tully and I got worried about you, so we followed it down here to the catacombs to investigate. Well, he ran ahead of me to make sure you were okay. I'm still a bit weak on my feet and couldn't keep up. I tried, really. I'm really sorry, McAllen, that I couldn't- Would you just stop? You saved my life again. You are a hell of a soldier and an amazing friend. Even before today, I couldn't repay you for all that you've done for me, Anton. She gently placed her hand on Anton's face. About Tully. That fucking coward. I can't believe he just- just left me there like that. He was gonna let me die, Anton. He was just going to- to let me die. After everything that we- Shh. McAllen, it's okay. I promise it'll be okay. I'm here now, and I promise that I won't ever leave you. Tully had no time to waste. For the second time in his life, he had leapt through a dimensional portal with absolutely no idea where it would take him. After leaping into the brilliant blue light of the keyhole, he found his body lose its corporal binding and then, just as quickly, suddenly found himself spit out in a strange room that was far colder than the warm, humid air of Leviathan. Tully immediately scanned the room for Oberlin, but instantly saw that he was alone. Broken glass and signs of a struggle littered the chamber. He looked behind him and saw the massive keyhole against the wall. It was an exact duplicate of the colossal sarcophagus in Leviathan, which made him painfully remember McAllen. You can't let him escape with the aliens. It will mean the end of the world. The portal. I've got to close the portal. It was as if the aliens, Elgar and Karana, could suddenly read Tully's mind. He saw their eyes widen in panic, and they struggled to move towards the glowing entrance of the keyhole, but the heavy chains that surrounded their hands were slowing their movement. I gotta stop him! I can't let him get through! He looked down at his hand and realized he was still clutching Evangeline's razor gun that he had picked up off the floor. The aliens were getting closer now, only a few feet away from the shimmering entrance to the keyhole. Tully squeezed the razor gun. Sending five, six, seven discs screaming at the heavy metal structure. As soon as they struck the sarcophagus, a massive shower of sparks erupted from the keyhole. Energy seemed to be pulsing and building throughout the structure. The window to Leviathan City began to contract and then faded back into darkness. The aliens were moving forward, but seemed to be drifting farther and farther away. When suddenly... Searing blue light poured out from deep cracks forming in the keyhole. The cold room instantly became unbearably hot, and a deep rumble emanated from somewhere deep within the portal. Oh, shit. Tully leapt behind one of the scientific tables in the back of the room, just in time to see Whit Roberts sprinting in hysterical. What the hell is going on? His eyes immediately fell to Tully. No, no, The massive keyhole exploded, sending dense fragments of his metal slicing through the room. The blast sent Tully crashing against the far wall. Everything went black, and after what seemed like an eternity, Tully heard a familiar voice far off in the distance. Tully! Tully, is that you? Tully, wake up. Oh my god, Tully, you gotta get up. Can you hear me? Ah, uh, Jesus. Oberlin. Oberlin, are you... Tully's head ached, and he knew that he was bleeding heavily somewhere on his body. Blue mist lingered across the room, casting unnatural shadows on the wall. Come on, Tully. We gotta get out of here. It's not safe. There's a psychotic lunatic in here trying to kill us. Come on! Come... Come... Oh! Okay, 
We have to move. Stay quiet. The two of them limped towards the exit of the room, when out of the darkness... Don't. Don't fucking move. Shit. Fucking moron. Do you know what you just did? We were on a rescue mission to save those two aliens from the immortal bastards that were keeping them prisoner. We had the chance to liberate them and prevent an attack on our planet, and you... You ruined all of it. Everything that will happen now is your fault, you fucking asshole. No, hey, hey, that's not the way it is. You know oh, I'm really glad you finally got to see your old friend, Oberlin. You had to travel all around the world to find him, <laughs> but you did it. Thanks, uh, I... I really appreciate your help. <laughs> I can't believe it's taken me this long to kill you and your stupid friend. No more Hail Marys for you, and no Chinese girlfriend to protect you. You hooked up with a Chinese girl? Please... Please, don't kill us. We never meant to do anything. Goodbye, Oberlin St. Clair. The R9S pistol flew out of Wit's hand. Hello, Wit. Senshin? Tully, get behind me. Your friend Oberlin, too. How the hell did you get past the Enforcers? Two of them decided to hop on a short flight. The other two were too slow to get me before I jumped down that little rabbit hole of yours. That was a several hundred foot drop. I had a reserve chute. I'll only say this once. You kill me, and the planet Sorax will launch an invasion that will enslave every human being on the planet. Black Door is the only thing that stands in the way of the genocide of the human race. How in God's name do you know about Sorax? You just missed them, Senshin. The aliens were almost here. What aliens? What is he talking about? Elgar and Karana? Am I to understand you actually saw the aliens here on Earth? Why would they have possibly come back? They never left, you idiot. I don't understand. It's it's true, Senshin. Look, I, I can't say that I understand everything that's going on here, but I was in Leviathan with McCallum less than five minutes ago. I was on the other side of that portal, and I saw those, those aliens myself. They're here on Earth, and they were trying like hell to get back over to this side to meet with Wit. Whoever or whatever they are, they don't want to be in Leviathan. And Evangeline was trying to keep them there. You saw them in Leviathan? It's true. I saw them through the keyhole myself. Why would they go back to Leviathan? Why would because they- Because they never left, Senshin. Don't you get it? The aliens never left Leviathan. They never left Earth. Elgar and Karana were kept prisoner within the very city they helped create. In return for their work, Evangeline kept the two aliens prisoner for over a thousand years. Against their will, so that- So she could continue to receive Starstones. My god, of course. No one ever questioned how the Starstones arrived, as long as they arrived, and people could be regenerated for another few decades of life. She kept them prisoner for a thousand years, just so she could live, just so she could continue to receive Starstones and remain in paradise, and remain the leader over all of us. That was her power. Evangeline, you horrific bitch. I cannot believe what she's done. We are on a rescue mission, Senshun. One that you did a marvelous job of fucking up. Senshun raised the Walter PPK and pointed it back at Wit. I won't be spoken to like that from a piece of scum like you. I know you. You're nothing more than a liar and an assassin. Whatever rescue mission you think you were on was clearly fucked up before I got here. You kill me and the aliens die too. You'll never see another Starstone again. You'll live just long enough to watch every human being become a mindless puppet. What the hell are you talking about? The aliens contacted us through Bennu and Leviathan. They wanted their freedom from the Leviathan barbarians that kept them captive. The very immortals that they helped nurture and foster a thousand years ago. When Black Door learned that the Chinese government had obtained a Starstone, a plan was put in place to steal it away from the government. Black Door's job was to get the Starstone close enough to Leviathan so that the aliens could interact with it, but far enough away so that Evangeline couldn't find it and use it to regenerate herself. The rogue Starstone. 
The aliens turned a communications device into a weapon. Exactly. It's why you kept hearing voices. Millions of them. The signal was designed to amplify the attunement phenomena found in immortals and link them to all of humanity. Normally, your immortal physiology would shut down, but the Starstone healing effect bolstered your mental capacity until your brains would literally seize up and kill you. The aliens created the deadly signal. Not Evangeline. Not even Black Door. It was your kind that held them prisoner, Senshin. It was your group that caused all of this. Not my group. You know damn well I rebelled. I and others like me fled Leviathan because we hated Evangeline. People gave their lives to live in freedom and not her autocratic regime. Seems like the aliens never got that lucky. I never knew the aliens were being kept prisoner. Ignorance is bliss, asshole. Give me one reason not to put a bullet in your eye socket right now. Because you can't be trusted. What? You're not trustworthy. The aliens don't trust many immortals. You can't really blame them after being held prisoner for a thousand years. That's why Black Door has been trying to kill the immortals. Because your people are the only ones with the power and resources to forestall a rescue mission of the aliens. That was the purpose of the Starstone weapon. To kill every immortal so that nothing would stand in the way of the aliens being rescued from Leviathan. In addition, Black Door was also engaged to hunt your people on the surface down. You're just cheap mercenaries. Black Door is at the forefront of American security policy. We stand for freedom and the protection of our nation. You and the other immortals represent not only a threat to the citizens of America, but you've also oppressed and violated the innate rights of sentient beings from another world that landed here accidentally. We're not mercenaries. We're the good guys. You're the scumbags from where we sit. Is that why you've hunted us down? Is that why an innocent boy's body lies dead up there because of one of your disgusting monstrosities? Your rebel group was always the real threat, Senshin. The aliens knew that sooner or later the Starstone would kill every immortal in Leviathan. It would only be a matter of time before their defenses failed. But you, the immortals on the surface, they were less sure about. It was our job to neutralize any remaining immortal threat to ensure the safety of the aliens. And enable their extraction. I'm here to liberate them from prison. You're in the way. The two men stared at each other for about 30 seconds, and nobody in the chamber moved even an inch. No. No, I'm not in the way. I want to help you. Sorry. I don't trust immortals, either. I haven't shot yet. Just a little more pressure from my index finger, and you wouldn't exist anymore. I have every reason to kill you, Whit Roberts, and I haven't yet. I'm listening. I rebelled 70 years ago. I left paradise because I refused not to live free. I led hundreds away from Eden. Do you have any idea what it was like to be in paradise, Whit? Being surrounded by people that encouraged and nurtured you? To be free of any material wants? To never have to worry about food or shelter or money? To be protected and safe and know that that safety would always be there? Permanent bliss. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to leave that voluntarily? Just because you believe in a principle. Oh, my heart bleeds. What's your point? My point is that I've risked my life for freedom. The aliens landed in our world in peace. They gave us the gift of immortality, and in exchange, we imprisoned them. I can't stand for that. I won't. If your mission is really to save the aliens that first gave us the gift of immortality, then I want to help you. <laughs> Forgive me, but my last team-building effort didn't end as well as I'd hoped. He stared at Oberlin. My help comes at a condition. I figured. Stop hunting my people. The rebels. You leave them alone. Forever. They get spared and live the rest of their lives in peace. What's in it for Black Door? Besides me not blowing your face off right now? Yeah. <laughs> Besides that. Simple. Where are the aliens now? They didn't make it through the keyhole. It looks like we failed. 
I assume they're still imprisoned in Leviathan. And what? Black Door is just going to burst into Leviathan with a nuclear sub and save the aliens? <laughs> if we have to? Fuck yes. No. No, you won't, because the aliens won't be there anymore. Evangeline now knows the aliens are trying to escape. She knows that you know where they are. She'll have them moved within the hour, and then you'll never find them again, unless I help you. Do you know where the aliens are? I know how to find them. Well then, gee, I guess it's really lucky that we ran into each other like this. Yes, lucky us. Um, I feel lucky. Sension stared at Oberlin and Tully and then lowered the weapon he was pointing at Wit. <sighs> Fine. You have a... a deal. I hope the threat of the world ending is enough to keep you honest, Wit, because we've got a long road ahead of us. We're going to save the aliens and destroy Leviathan in the process. I can see now that the world is only big enough for one group of immortals. My group. And with Blackthorn and the Rebellion working together, we can finish this war once and for all. Evangeline will never know what hit her. You have been listening to The Leviathan Chronicles. The Leviathan Chronicles was written and created by Christoph Lepupka, produced by Robin Shaw, produced and musical composition by Luke Allen, directed by Nobi Nakanishi. For a full list of cast and crew, or to purchase the ad-free director's cut, go to leviathanchronicles.com. Thank you for supporting us, and thank you for listening. To discover more podcasts set in the Leviathan universe, go to leviathanaudioproductions.com or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Leviathan Audio Production. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.